What'd you say? Hello, and welcome to the TOA podcast, where we invite readers to eavesdrop and interlope on conversations among the offending Adams editors and the authors we publish. I'm your host, Avni Vyas, and today we'll hear from Christine Gosney, the author of the chapbook, The Double Slit Experiment, and from Nick DeDominic, Christine's editor for this project. We'll begin with Christine Gosney reading a short excerpt from The Double Slit Experiment. Mr. Richard Feynman describes the double slit experiment. Just relax and enjoy. I'm going to tell you what nature behaves like. And if you will simply admit that maybe she does behave like this, you'll find her a delightful, entrancing thing. Asleep inside the word for water, the unglossy leaf goes on its golden journey with the sunlight. It is a magnificent seat in the river's magnificent seat. In many ways, we don't use pressure to express time. Here or here in a profligate patch, picture what is wildly going, growing mild, bolting outside a dark schoolhouse. Or here, silt catch place, making slit catch place by the river with small hearts of cordates with even smaller cuneates. When the mock white circle appears at the back of your tongue, I wait to be correct. Limitless address. I practice this in many men. The window fills with juice-colored light. The attractive neighbor backs up a car on his way to eternity. In this my room, from lustrous, lustrous buildings, distant sunset sheen, I learn I will not be the one to find the world's smallest things. White paper boats fill my street. I spend an hour in silence, shining my reflection into the black center in the word glass. Far off in ourselves, so many wanting. Not enough light to put window on the ground. Once, I was fingertips on a collar, coming in lumps, not waves. Way outside town, a wind pushes, softly rocking, where mares wade without daylight into the field. A shaft bursts onto a creek tipped open after months called darkness. Language makes the word for luck before the word for laughter. We are, as between us, so closely arranged that somewhere leeches move. Malo frangere quam flectere. The light says what it sees the hands do. By squeezing the skin in devotion, you make it bright, then not bright. Some nights are no darker than the bare arm held out like the creek that spreads ice bound, carrying itself to the mares who wade into the field, not showing what they follow. Formally styled, I was a girl with a peach on my collarbone. I saw patients abandoned to a mirror in a well. Men called it lovely when I bent the fruit's fuzz to my jaw. Ruin consumed the third person in the room, the scattering light, a pleasure thing pinned to the floor. My morning again, the glass, the field, the chimney, the moon, the mist, foreshortening all dark everythings to one thing called before. These were the ancient things. 
wave, mistake, and stone. Oh me, myself before, and irises. Old jasper eye that, like lashes, bats, like memory follows fools. Light dresses the forest up before it dresses the plains. I take my little heart out walking late in a pine grove. I go among the evergreens with the lust snails who are directing their blind entwining opera between the below where they are the aristocrats. The wood upholds its uniform light, national brown and sure. Nor will the rain reach the ground except as laughter, which bundled in my sailing gown, face bent inward on its slack dream smile, I will mistake for the gentle rain reaching the ground. We'll be hearing more from Christine Gosney in a few minutes. But first, the TOA editor, Nick DeDominic, is here to talk a bit about Christine's work. If you were to um, describe this text, so let's think about our, our listeners, our readers. Yeah. Um, as an editor, where would you want to draw their attention? I think something that you and I have talked to about before is a lot of lyric or kind of typical contemporary poetry is is sort of a, a, a bone, wind, and air. There's a sort of almost, there's there's an affectation of a voice that's that's there, what sort of poetry is supposed to look like. Um, and it's, it's not always evident that there's a sort of person behind it. And I think what Christine does like exceptionally, exceptionally well is she does a a very contemporary lyric that's got a, a really definable personality. I think back to this idea of sort of mastery or virtuosoness in it, that it it looks like other stuff that's being sort of published in you know poetry in the Paris Review. It's it's got it's got the costume on, um, but it is so so much more than that. I, I would point readers' attention to the subtlety of what is sort of being performed on the page in kind of every line. You know, in a way, a lot of times we talk about sort of like teaching, right? Like a line should, should, should I think about, or actually in my own craft, like I think about a line, you know, my aim is to surprise the reader twice a line, um, but like never in like hokey kind of bullshit theatrics kind of way, just for things to kind of turn in a way that's unexpected. And she just does that consistently line by line. You're like, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, I didn't see that coming. I, well, I didn't see that coming. Back to this idea too of a, a shimmeriness or a, a slippery speaker, right? It's really, really hard to define the work because of that. But it, it then becomes kind of all of these things. One of the questions that you sent me in preparation for this, uh, are talking was sort of, you know, who are other kind of poets that I can be like, this is like that. And I was like, fuck, this is really hard. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I, for some reason, my brain kind of went to Adrian Rich and I was like, ah, maybe. And then I was kind of reviewing Rich and I was like, no, not at all. And then for some, some reason there was Ann Carson and I was just thinking maybe of the kind of sapphic, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, something there but maybe not Carson I reread Lowell in preparation so there is kind of a sense of the confessional too but yeah I don't I don't think anybody's really kind of doing what what Christine's doing 
I don't want to say like a disembodied confession, but maybe that's what I mean. Maybe, you know, a voice gets to confess itself, even if we don't know who that voice belongs to. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was thinking about, you know, the, the mechanisms of that, like how, how does a voice get to do that? And so like, I have this list and I, I kind of went back through it and thinking about like particle wave and I was trying to resist looking for binaries. You know, it's so tempting as a reader to sort of like read binaries as thematic notions of understanding a thing. Um, but it's kind of impossible to ignore the, like when binaries are sort of set up, set up to each other to kind of resist each other rather than, um, yeah, to kind of resist each other, almost like uh, the opposite sides of a magnet, right? Um, so I'm thinking about things like the themes of human and nature. We have, I think, slugs in one line and then they're performing an opera in the next. So we have this, you know, nature and then high civilization. Then we have uh, a couple of like lines as I was pulling for um, the posts for our social media. Human hands have no profit, you know, are profitless here. Things like that. Just uh, these really great, rejections of of civilization rejections of humanity um but also there's like lyric and litany so it's it's you kind of can't reject the person the personable the the human in it but it's so devoted i think to um to light and image and 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 things beyond the human so i'm i'm such a fan of how all of that coalesces in this in this piece um yeah and there to 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 miro um the there there's something you know i don't i don't think there are but it also feels like there's wood nymphs all over this thing you know that i think because we get so so, so many kind of images of of mares and mists and kind of forestry and christine talked about this too is often starting poems from places trying to describe light right that and obviously because double split experiment like there's there's light all over the book and the the book is dappled you know he's mm -hmm. a kind of a good word for it it's a, there's there's oaks in the distance and there's light shining kind of through and there's a dappling kind of on the ground through the leaves and i i now i'm thinking of willow the, 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 the movie. movie. I, I don't know why I'm thinking of Willow, the movie. Because it takes place in that like beautiful, I mean, I'm just, I don't even remember the movie. I'm just remembering kind of where it was filmed. And like, I'm thinking of the, the VHS cover and, uh, you know, Val Kilmer's in there somewhere. Um, but it's just this forest that's so like thick and mossy and like there's a, there's a ravine, right? Isn't that where like the baby gets found or something like that? There's a yeah, baby in that movie, right? Yeah, your brain's exactly where my brain is, right? So yeah, there's yeah, yeah, yeah. No Val Kilmer, but there is a we are we are existing in the land of wit, right? But it that's the other thing too. I think back to that kind of virtuosity is that um, none of it feels overwrought. Like mm -hmm. if I sat down and tried to kind of recreate this super fecund space, it it would be dripping with adjectives. It would be kind of over and Again, here, the, the lines are super spare. The space is really spare. The longer poems are maybe six to eight couplets, right? There's, there's not a lot. 
and it's it's different, you know, from my kind of own writing because I am I'm attracted to poems that are kind of talky and over-explainy and a little awkward and a little stumbling over themselves. And here, there's a lot of restraint. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, you know, again, I think that's just what what it's done so well. It's almost like the um, difference between uh, as you were describing, like how you might approach a similar project. My my instinct, and I don't know if this is like MFA school talking, but I want to I want to build that world, right? Like I want to inhabit it with my verbs, and I want the um, images to be super precise. Like I want to control something that shouldn't be controlled, right? Um, but the kind of beauty of the way that these lines move is that it's very similar to light, where it's not articulating something directly. It's it's showing it in one. It's like one set of terms, and then you know it it moves very elegantly in a way that um, maybe voice-driven writers, I'm going to call myself a voice-driven writer for, for the sake of this conversation. Right, I am too, right, yeah. So like that that voiciness doesn't really lend itself to an elegant dappling the way that we are, we're getting here. Um, we're getting like, yeah, we're getting we're getting a lot of uh, elegance. It's super exciting. I'm, I'm, I can't wait for our listeners to check out Christine's work and uh, experience for themselves. We'll take a short break, then Christine Gosney will join Nick DeDominic to talk about the double slit experiment. Um, I think we can just start kind of talking about the book. Tell me about particle physics. Let's open it up with like how light works. Yeah, I would love to be able to tell you about particle physics. Um, but unfortunately, the reason that I started writing this, which started out, which feels like so long ago, is because I don't understand particle physics. And uh, so this was born out of a desire to try and understand something that I kind of stumbled upon because of a couple of the books that I had um, in my house that have uh, been on my bookshelves for like 20 years, I think, mm. uh, which are the Feynman lectures. Um, I guess it's called the Feynman lectures in physics. And um, I don't understand anything in those books, but I'll sometimes kind of open them and try to just like live in that world. And I ended up watching a lecture that Feynman gave. Um, I guess I should just like say, I, I guess he was just a prominent um, physicist, uh, famously a very sought after lecturer. Um, I don't know that much about his life. I know he wrote an autobiography that um, people love to read, a really interesting person, very accessible in, in spite of the fact that he was kind of operating with like concepts and things that are um, not easy to communicate. He was able to become kind of accessible in a personality way, I think, to a lot of people that kind of maybe only have a cursory involvement with things like physics. And so um, the first uh, sort of poem in this chat book is actually just really a quote um, of how he starts talking about the double slit experiment, where he's describing nature as a delightful and entrancing thing. And um, just sort of begging you to just believe that things are the way that they are. And if you do, then you can you can see nature that way. And it's it's her, it's she. Um, so that really piqued my interest. And um, I just started obsessing about all of this uh, for um, a long time. And now here we are. It was really kind of like one huge long poem for a long time that I worked on too much and 
it didn't really work that way. It really was more of like um, something that I saw as a book eventually. And yeah, it's it's changed a lot over the years. Um, but the the beginning has always been the same. That's great. It's interesting. A couple things that you kind of got to it, the the next question that I had because I, I didn't know that was directly from Feynman, but I wondered about I was really the work's really interesting to me because I think of sort of particle physics and like math as like as a, a scary hard place and the, the book's really soft and feminine. And so I was I was curious about that sort of initial movement to kind of gender nature as her. And so it kind of makes a lot, lot more sense then to hear that that's kind of his language. I was also thinking too, I don't think as of particle physics as sensual. And the book is super, super sensual. It's, it's laden with this yonic imagery throughout. I guess back to, I'm confused by physics now, just I don't know anything <laughs> about it, but just even starting to think about it. I just kind of wanted to hear your ideas on some of those choices about, I think in some ways, kind of repurposing this science in a way that feels really, really natural in like capital N nature. Yeah, I remember feeling like super shocked when I heard the way that he spoke in that lecture, um, those words like just relax and enjoy. Um, you don't really think of someone talking that way when they start to then tell you about um, the bizarre way in which they projected light between two horizontal slits and then on the, the sheet behind, uh, then they observed uh, two different uh, demonstrations of how the light emerged, both as as particles and as waves. And um, yes, I was I was fascinated by that um, sort of juxtaposition, the way that he uh, moved into talking about this experiment, which is famously strange because of what it demonstrates. And I think that made me start thinking, I guess, about light in a different way than I had before, because it's definitely one of my favorite topics to write about and to observe. And generally, when I begin writing a poem, that's almost always the beginning of like the, the actual generative source of the poem is that I saw some light that I thought was interesting. Almost always, that's something that I'm thinking about, something that I'm trying and failing to describe. And to think of it as being feminine or sensual was a huge part of uh, what the direction that a lot of this took. And also the, just the element of reference thinking back on what I've learned about this double slit experiment is just the, the highly referential nature of so much of this research and work tends to mention and draw upon things so that you're constantly feeling like, well, now I have to go look this up. Well, I don't understand that. So now I have to go look at three more things. And I feel the same way about reading. It's as soon as you open a book, now you have to open 10 more and you start to get that feeling of like, oh no, I'm never going to ever be able to read this many books. Should I just give up? So there's a lot of uh, sort of references throughout here to other poets, other poems that were things that I probably struggled to understand at first and sent me down a labyrinth of discovery of other poets. And so those two qualities of like the sensuality and the referential nature of everything that can feel so frustrating and rewarding are probably the, the biggest influences on this book. I think I certainly, I, you know, kind of when I initially read the book and then was rereading it in preparation for our talk today, did find myself 
I don't know how. I'm going to put it in the chat and then you say it because I don't know how to say it. Okay. Who is that? Now, I think this is really funny because this was um, something that I didn't know how to pronounce for the longest time. And I'm sure um, I probably going to say it wrong. This is when I was little, I remember reading a book and I thought it was me rope. And obviously I think it's Miropi. Um, right. And yeah, it's, that is, it's so funny that you asked that because I, when I was young, um, read a lot. And so I always was saying things wrong to myself and then would be embarrassed when I, uh, probably the, the, the famous example in my mind is when I said infrared, I meant infrared. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this is a it's a constellation. It's a a Greek figure. Um, yeah, that's uh, I I love that. Um, I don't know if there's a word for that phenomenon, but learning that you've been saying a word wrong inside your own head for years, um, super interesting to me. I I love and hate that that feeling. I think it's really wonderful. I you know you, I feel like there was a meme circulating for a while. You know, never make fun of somebody who mispronounces a word because they obviously learned it from reading it, you know, and we, we shouldn't kind of dismiss that. Yeah, I wanted to say me rope as well. And that it is a thing that sort of kind of sent me down, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm looking up kind of Greek, other Greek mythological figures. And now I'm looking, yeah, I'm just going to say me rope for the rest of our, me rope is one of seven Pleiades, daughters of Atlas and I don't know how to say that either, Pleione. Uh, their mother is the daughter of Oceanus and Typhus and is the protector of sailors, their transformation in the star cluster known as Pleiades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a plant. I guess all of the Greek stuff sort of gets into to, to plant stuff. But yeah, right? And there's sort of forests throughout. And then also, too, there's a line. I think it's, yeah, it's in Latin from... When I was kind of poking around on it, would it brought up Robert Lowell, and with the Robert Lowell, it was sort of this this thing that he had wrote in kind of a correspondence about bending, not breaking, which is just a wonderful kind of allusion to pull what to do work and thinking about light with. So, where did the Lowell stuff come from? Yes, that was. Something that I read, um, a really interesting anecdote about when he wrote that line in Latin, which is supposed to say rather to bend than break or better to, to bend than break, he wrote it incorrectly. Um, so he actually ended up saying um, rather or better to break than bend, which wasn't what he meant. Um, so I use that first and then I fix it for him later. Um, so I just went ahead and, you know, just casually corrected Robert Lowell. No big deal. Check you the fuck out. That's great. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was, I was poking around on it and I pulled up a chapter uh, called Men and Mermaids, Robert Lowell's Martial Masculinity and Beyond. And it, it, sort of the abstract of the article, the major concern of confessional poets with exploring their own identities inevitably involves an exploration explicit or implicit of their gender identities. Um, and then kind of en ends with that idea. Are you, yeah, tell me about sort of your familiarity with Robert Lowell. And then also kind of, I do think there's just so much exploration of gender going on here. There's also this kind of evocation of, of grayness, which 
we associate with light, of course, uh, but that kind of continues to, to show up. I've also been rereading a lot of Joan Didion because that sort of recollection came out and Didion describing her own writing as kind of a shimmering. And I feel like, again, because we're thinking about light a lot, just how, how much this book shimmers. Um, I realize that's not a question, but I'm just telling you beautiful things about your work. Uh, respond <laughs> to that. Yeah, well, I think um, I really like that idea of something shimmering. I like I like that word. I like to think about things that way that don't actually shimmer. I'm I'm trying to to I guess imagine how I feel about Robert Lowell. I went through maybe two or three years where I kind of tried to read every poem that he'd ever written. I really read Life Studies as a collection, wanting it to help me think about how to organize the book that I was writing at the time. I had already written that book even years, but I I didn't really have a good thought about how to order the books inside, order the poems inside of the book rather. And so I, I started off thinking, I really like the way life studies is sort of chronologically moving. I, I want to do something like that, where he had like these sort of more biographical, ambitious type poems in there mixed in with just, you know, remarkable Robert Lowell poems that are so confessional. I don't know if that's the right word even. I don't know why they're called confessional poets. And I know everybody has like strong feelings about calling him that. But yeah, just the way that he puts things next to each other that you don't expect so then that turned into this fascination with, like, I read a biography of him. I read the book of the letters that he wrote um, to Elizabeth Bishop and back, um, all that correspondence. Um, and so I'm kind of sick of him at this point because I've just <laughs> spent so much time reading about him and reading his poetry. But it it really uh, had an effect on me uh, just to try to like get inside of his thoughts. And it, I think, interestingly enough, I, I tried to do the same thing with Sylvia Plath and didn't go anywhere, didn't find that same connection for whatever reason. And I think I don't know what that says about me, but I definitely had a Robert Lowell face. I guess... You mentioned Joan dating too, which is a good way to segue into like, how do I see like the ideas of gender in this book? I have always felt um, sort of a kinship with something. I remember reading that she said she could go in a room and no one would notice her because she was so slight and unassuming. And that was something that gave her, I guess, a boost to her ability to write good nonfiction because she could be somewhere and people really wouldn't notice what they were saying around her sometimes because they didn't really feel like she was there or they didn't notice that she was there maybe at first. I don't remember where I read that, but I really thought that was interesting. And I feel, I also kind of feel that way as a person. I just never feel like anyone in a group setting notices me. I often get called Catherine um, I have talked about this to death. People never remember my name. I never, I never feel like people remember me the next day, especially like writer settings, literary settings, which is used to bother me. But now I just think it's really funny. And I've kind of tried to run with that a lot in this book. It really comes out. Um, it's almost like each little poem is kind of its own version of me talking in a different way, trying to identify like what voice I could use that people would notice the most. Um, that is definitely here. And I think in that respect, 
I, I just started to think, well, why don't I just stop noticing myself too? And just play around with, with that concept of like, who am I here? Who am I now? Not a persona poem, not that, but just a, a, an attempt to kind of capitalize on that. Well, if, if I'm not remembered, then I can just do anything in any style. Um, and so the hope is that those, that style is all interwoven. Um, and at some point, um, each line is kind of calling uh, calling forward or backwards to something else. But yeah, that uh, maybe not exactly answers the question about gender, but the way I've always felt like just a little bit of a disconnect from my own identity because of how other people have portrayed that to me. This is the only book I think where I've tried to to use that in writing. Well, I think it, it ha- it's showing up, right? And I think the book, the kind of question that I had as I was moving moving through it was like sort of kind of back to the Robert Lowell stuff, kind of confessional poet poetry and what, what that means is I sort of thought about the the I and who the I was, you know, reverting back to like intro to poetry, like who's the fucking speaker in this poem, right? Like I was trying to kind of nail that down. And there was sort of, there was slippage, there was slippage, or again, to use the word kind of a shimmeringness to it on the, on the water surface where, you know, I had a reflection of what I thought the speaker was. And then in the, in the next segment, it, it wasn't the kind of same. And, I, you know, I think for a, a book that's thinking about an experiment where, you know, light presents itself both in particle and kind of wave, you know, it's a, a really, really mm-hmm. effective thing to do. One of the things that you just kind of talked about was was how sort of freeing it is for the poems to be sort of different poems in these each each of these sections. And you know, one of the things you kind of mentioned when we began speaking too is that the poem started as a long poem and that, you know, you kind of got sick of it and went back and then then edited it. Tell me about that sort of editing process and kind of was that, you know, realization that you could be or the poem could be sort of any speaker you wanted to, something that came secondary in that editing process? Or was that slipping narrator some something that you always had in mind as you were drafting? Yeah, I don't think I thought of the narrator that much at first, because in the beginning, a lot of the, I guess they're kind of like little characters that show up in here, like Mr. Grave Owl and... Mr. Black Maps and like all the different colors and stuff that um, I was, all of that was there to begin with. And many of those came from just interesting people that I had known at the time, or were I was thinking about like how I perceived them, wondering about how they perceived me, um, not really wanting to try to write about those people that I knew, but rather to think about how to write about someone and completely transform that into almost nonsense to the point where it's almost like a private mythology that I have, but I can use it to, to draw in these other ideas and make, and make it almost absurd enough that it doesn't matter what, what I'm talking about. But at some point, the only thing that's really even there other than my memory, which has now changed because of how absurd I've made these things, it's just the colors and it's just the like the vague memory that I have of like the kernel of where that idea to write about this person came from. And I remember initially thinking that this was going to be, you know, as a long poem, just like a long reflection on a bunch of different things, but that all had to do with like something that could be seen two ways, you know, whether it's as a particle and a wave 
or um, whatever the, the corresponding like poetic idea would be. But when I thought of it less as a long poem and more of a book, I really moved away from that and tried to think about how to begin again with this like shocking, what I think is a shocking way to describe something from Richard Feynman and then end somewhere completely different. And along the way, just sort of be lost and completely, completely lost other than the references. And so at this point, I probably couldn't even tell you how many times it it happens where there's something that's like connected to something before it and then a third thing comes back later. I don't even remember what they all are, but I like that. And I, I, I love when people are able to say like, who's the speaker in the poem? Because if you ever asked me about any poem I've ever read, written, who is the speaker of this poem? I have no idea. I have no, I have no clue. I don't know. It's just something I thought of. So it's not me, um, but also obviously it's me. It's like, I always have this uh, thought like me and my own mind. Um, it's the same thing, but I cannot, I can't reconcile that. There's no way that I and my mind are not two different things. They have to be. It's the ghost yeah. in the machine. I'm bringing right. it back. <laughs> Somebody else is, is driving or there's some other thing. Have you have you seen that Richard Feynman has a t Twitter? Oh wow, is he um is no, he okay? He died, he died in 1988. So I but somebody started a a, a Twitter account for him, and it's it's interesting because it kind of speaks to this weird thing that we're talking about of like speaker and poet and poet persona, because I, I think the Twitter account is like half Richard Feynman quotes. And then, like, somebody, the ghost in the machine, who's like, I'm going to share this Schrodinger's cat meme that I think Richard Feynman would like. And, <laughs> and, and so, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time on it today. And then right here, too, Richard Feynman has a pinned tweet. No government has the right to decide on the truth of scientific principles, determine the aesthetic value of artistic creation limit the forms of literary artistic expression, pronounce the validity of historic, religious, or philosophical doctrines. Very well could be Feynman, very well could, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of slippage there. So I, I wanted to share that with you. Well, this just confirms what I had suspected, which is that, um, of course, he's not dead. I mean, who, how is that possible? So I'm greatly, um, relieved um obviously the news of his death was exaggerated um <laughs> yeah he's definitely a wellspring for lots of quotes um so i'm not surprised that there is a twitter account for him i think he's a very quotable person a, a very quotable sort of face too like i think that that came into play like just i watched so many videos of him this was in like 2015 i think just a really i feel like when he entered a room no one would call him Catherine. No one would call him Robert. No one would forget his name. No one would have any question about who was the main character in that room. So I, I love uh, sort of observing people like that, that are so charismatic, that, that so easily draw attention. Something that's, I think, it's fun to think about. Uh, it's so foreign to me. I don't, I don't understand what that quality is or how, where it comes from, how people get it. But it's, along with light, one of my main fascinations is just trying to sort of ever grasp that. Do you think then there's some sort of, 
I mean, back to the kind of Didion thing, right? That there's some some sort of power then by kind of you you get to occupy that space and kind of attach to the personality, and then when you're done with it, you get to let it go. Again, sort of, I was reading through Lowell stuff today. You know, Robert Lowell, it, it seemed, was was just a, a terrible pain in so many aspects of his life, uh, probably very insufferable to be around. Uh, this is also where I get to talk shit about Robert Lowell. You, you got to correct him earlier, and I, I just get to call him a bastard. But, like, you know, Robert Lowell never, I don't think, ever got to not be you know, at Bucknell being Robert Lowell do philandering or doing whatever terrible thing he was, is there some ability, you know, to sort of be a, a Catherine and sort of move move in and out of these spaces? Yeah, I I love to do that as a writer. It's probably my favorite thing, um, because I don't I don't have the ability to do that in in person. I'm too shy. I'm too held back by like my own fear of I guess just in general saying or doing the wrong thing. So I usually don't say anything at all. And then I go and think about it for weeks and stew. Um, even if there was nothing wrong with what I did or didn't say, um, that's just the way that I, that I am. And I, I'm old enough at this point where I'm not like, I know I'm not ever going to be any different from that. So I really enjoy um, just intellectually like messing around with, with the things that I, that I say in my writing. And I think in contrast with someone like Robert Lowell, who, you know, I think was famously pretty uninhibited in his actual behavior because of whatever problems he had in his personal life or his, his mental health or whatever made him the way that he was, he acted pretty much however he wanted to sometimes. And I've kind of arranged my life the opposite way to make sure that I don't ever do that out of a fear that, you know, maybe somewhere in like my emotional space there's the potential that I would act that way so I I'm, I pretty much have created a life that will not allow me to do that by my own choice um, a pretty quiet life I think but that doesn't change like the the vast power of speculation like just emotional speculation intellectual speculation that's like complete freedom that's the ability to just do anything in Definitely, I'm someone who just will imagine a scenario for hours that will never play out. Kind of like the the uh, the thought of like having um, an entire argument in the shower with someone that will never happen, but just like imagining how you would uh, respond, what would your rejoinders be? Um, yeah, that's pretty much me all the time. My brain is just a carnival of speculation. So yeah, I I, I love that. I've, I've come to embrace it rather than try to, you know, pretend that I'm not like that. Love to imagine things that'll never happen. That's lovely. I'm, I'm writing down the phrase carnival of speculation because I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to do with that. I'm, I'm in fact working with my therapist right now not to do exactly that, to like not kind of constantly replay moments and, you know, events from eight months ago that I wish I could return to and, and say this other thing and that would really show them. But again, too, there's there's just so much power on it. I think with this carnival of, of speculation and uh, creating kind of, as you said earlier about the book, a, a private mythology, um, I'm really interested to just kind of hear what you're working on now and what, what all of that kind of looks like and sounds like and maybe some of the ideas that you're playing with here or is that stuff that's showing up elsewhere in, in, in the new work or what, what, what's going on? 
Yeah, I'm really, I'm really enjoying what I have, I guess I think I could pretty much say that I've, I'm finished working on it. And now it's someone else's job to kind of like publish it. Um, another oh. book where um, I, I had written a few poems and published them previously that essentially are poems in which I'm like arguing with my soul. So my soul is uh, kind of like just some guy um, that's in the room with me or he's doing something annoying and I have to get him to stop. And I, I think I wrote four poems like that. And these started out as dreams that I had. Um, I kept having these, I still have them sometimes, dreams where I was uh, basically like, it would always be in like a basement or a parking garage or something. For years and years and years, I would have this dream. Um, and I started imagining like that, what, what would that actually be like in real life? Why would I be in a place like that? And as I sort of meandered through that idea, I realized that I was kind of imagining this like place in my mind where I could go to get away from that recurring dream. And so the, the book that I had just finished editing and started sending out is kind of about this, like almost like a, like a bar, like a lounge in my mind where I feel, I feel like I imagine, again, this separation of like me from my own thoughts, like the senses, like the, the senses that I have to like touch things and hear things. This idea of my soul being someone that I can talk to and like fight with, if he's getting on my nerves. Um, he can take care of like the problems while I just kind of lounge and relax and am decadent. So that, that book has been uh, maybe since 2016 I was working on. And um, yeah, it's, I hope someone likes it. Nobody's liked it yet. Everybody's hated it. That's a good start though. I, That's how I good things usually start. Oh, oh, you say that, did you say that nobody's hated it? Oh no, everybody has. Oh, no, I, Resoundingly. I, I doubt that, right? I mean, <laughs> are, are you getting rejections that are like, fuck this manuscript, please take it away from me or... Well, no one's come out and just outright said that, but I know that's what they wanted to say. No, I'm just kidding. I know, you know, it's just so frustrating. Look, like the contests and uh, yeah, I don't, I, I'll refrain from sharing my opinions on those, but it's, it's, it's just so much work. It's like, uh, I hope that someone likes this. Here's $25. And then six months later, um, thanks. It, it yeah. It's, I think it's a really lonely process and I don't know that there's really any point where you stop feeling lonely about that, even if you already published a book. So even though it's not personal, it feels just draining. Um, but yeah, it's it'll, it'll happen someday, I guess. There's, I'm so optimistic. <laughs> so you, I guess you. Well, all right. So this actually kind of leads into. I think about arguing with your soul in a dream in 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 a basement. Um, and then that basement becoming a bar room in the book. And I just kind of automatically, my brain goes into this sort of like mythological descent into hell. Um, and the, the kind of need uh, also to sort of have hope and, and, and come out of that space. Is, is the sort of bar room or is the basement a, a, an underworld? Well, I'll let you decide because the first poem in the manuscript is called Purgatoria. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of the stuff that we we talk about sort of at, at the Offending Atom in our editorial sessions are kind of why this business works the way it does, right? And like, what are some kind of ways to reimagine it? 
where, you know, um, it's more equitable and it's more, uh, you know, I think too, like, you know, everybody on this call like has a book and it's still fucking impossible. Um, you know, and, and how very, very difficult it is if you're kind of three rungs lower on, on the, the map. So yeah, how do we do away with contests? See, I don't know, because I mean, obviously, I won a contest. That was how my first book became a book that people could like hold in their hands or, you know, peer at in their Kindle screens or wherever they read it. So I'm really grateful for that. But um, I do feel like there just has to be something else too. Mm. And I felt really fortunate that I did have that experience to, to publish with a contest. I loved how that happened. It was really rewarding. Um, but since I'm, I'm not really like, I don't feel like I'm a poet because that's not like what my job is. I didn't go to school for that. I don't teach at a school for that. And it can feel a little bit alienating to see like you know all this I don't even know how people get fellowships I don't understand a lot of that even though it's been explained to me many times and I don't say this I don't feel negative about this I just feel like I'm I'm on the other side of some wall where that process is happening differently for other people simply because of their circumstances so it's it's almost like at the drop of a hat I could just stop trying I could stop submitting things and publishing things. And would anyone know? Would anyone notice? Um, I, I think there are certain people who are writers where if they stopped publishing things, people would be like, hey, why? Where's your? when's your next book coming out? Um, it's just foreign. It's so different. And I think, yeah, there, there has to be, though, there has to be another way to do it other than, um, I hate that it's called a contest too. Yeah, it's it's weird. I think it's just strange. Um, I totally understand why it is the way that it is. I read about like kind of how the MFA programs got started, and um, I think that I think it's great that people get to go just kind of live and breathe poetry and be in these programs. I wish that I had done that. Yeah, so I, I do feel a little bit jealous of that life, but also it's like someone just tell me like, how do you how do you call Simon and Schuster and tell them about like your book how does that work who 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 does that um yeah i just don't know i have I no don't... answers i only have questions well i think we're just about out of time thanks christine for joining us today and now we'll close out the podcast with another reading from the double slit experiment language makes the word for luck before the word for laughter we are as between us so closely arranged that somewhere leeches move. Malo frangere quam flectere. The light says what it sees the hands do. By squeezing the skin in devotion, you make it bright, then not bright. Some nights are no darker than the bare arm held out like the creek that spreads ice bound, carrying itself to the mares who wade into the field, not showing what they follow. Formally styled, I was a girl with a peach on my collarbone. I saw patients abandoned to a mirror in a well. Men called it lovely when I bent the fruit's fuzz to my jaw. Ruin consumed the third person in the room, the scattering light, a pleasure thing pinned to the floor. 
My morning again, the glass, the field, the chimney, the moon, the mist, foreshortening all dark everythings to one thing called before. These were the ancient things, wave, mistake, and stone. Oh me, myself before and irises, old jasper eye that, like lashes, bats, like memory follows fools. Light dresses the forest up before it dresses the plains. I take my little heart out walking late in a pine grove. I go among the evergreens with the lust snails who are directing their blind entwining opera between the below where they are the aristocrats. The wood upholds its uniform light, national brown and sure. Nor will the rain reach the ground except as laughter, which, bundled in my sailing gown, face bent inward on its slack dreams smile, I will mistake for the gentle rain reaching the ground. The TOA Podcast is a production of The Offending Atom, a literary nonprofit publishing new writing alongside innovative editorial engagement that invites readers into the context, history, and processes of literary creation. Each month, TheOffendingAdam.com launches new digital chapbooks, plus podcasts and newsletters that take you deeper into the poetic weeds. Listeners can join the TOA community at www.theoffendingadam.com to help support the artists TOA publishes. Today's podcast was hosted by me, Avni Vyas, and edited by Nick Dominic. Music by Palberta. Our other editors are Andrew Wessels, Ryan Wynette, and Whitney Holmes. Thanks for listening.